so interesting, the mind. Can't hear me? Can you hear me now? How about now? Because I, I do drop my voice sometimes, so a little higher. Okay. Oh, I was just looking out at your beautiful faces and thinking how interesting the mind is because before I come here to give the talk, I dread it. I dread it. I mean, not all day, but last night. You can ask, you can ask them. I'm like, Jack, could somebody else give the talk tomorrow night? Um, and then I get here and I see you and it's completely fine. There's something about the immediacy of lived experience without the overlay of thinking, anticipation. I think you've heard something about that. So tonight I want to speak about conflict and kindness, about identity and loving awareness of who we truly are. And I want to begin with a story that I've actually told here before, but it just seems even more important now in a time of so much war. And this is a story that I learned from a dear friend named Warren, Warren Bennis, and he saw it on CNN. And then it was, um, it was also written in The New Yorker. So it's a story from the Iraq War. And it's a story about a small unit of American soldiers who were walking along a street in Najaf. And when you see the CNN tape, you can see that they were actually walking toward a mosque. And they were going there with the intention of protecting the mosque. There had been some violence. But of course, right, nobody in the town really knew that. And they have formed an opinion about the American soldiers heading toward their mosque. So hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side of the soldiers, and they were waving their fists and uh, just their throats tight as they pressed in on the Americans. And the Americans were looking at each other in terror. And the Iraqis were shrieking. They were frantic with rage. And the reporter who was writing this story said, this is it. He really thought he was about to see the Malay massacre of the Iraq war. He thought, you know, a shot is going to come from somewhere, and the Americans will open fire, and the world will witness a massacre. And at that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, and he was holding his rifle over his head with the barrel pointed down to the ground. And against the backdrop of this seething crowd, it, was, it looked like a, almost a biblical gesture. The officer said, take a knee impassive behind his surfer sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he were crazy. 
and then swaying in their bulky armor and their gear. One after another, they knelt before that boiling crowd and they pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell completely silent. Their anger fell away. And the officer ordered his men to withdraw. So the officer in charge was named Lieutenant uh, Chris Hughes, Lieutenant Colonel, excuse me, Chris Hughes. And the New Yorker reporter who wrote about this tracked him down months later at his home in Iowa to find out what how did he learn to tame a crowd like that and who taught him. And he said it was just an obvious solution to him. It was a gesture of respect. And shortly after that fraught experience in Najaf, the then new Army Chief of Staff, General Shinseki, this was in 2005, um, concluded that the Army's officers were not prepared to innovate in this incoherent, asymmetrical war, and that most of the training manuals in existence at that time were basically um, non-essential and meaningless. So here, our mindfulness, our practice of loving awareness, is our gesture of respect to each other and to this life that we are sharing here. And for the past few years, actually, the Army has been learning about mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn and Elizabeth Stanley. And they've created, out of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, the MBSR program, uh, MBFT, Mindfulness-Based um, Fitness Training, as a kind of immunization against the destructive effects of PTSD. And they've already seen astonishing results in the studies of working memory with huge implications for the mental health of our soldiers and their ability to act with mindfulness, humility, and respect, as Lieutenant Colonel Hughes did. In that moment, he stepped out of the fear and loneliness of being encapsulated in a thought world. Our identity is created with our thoughts. We can see this. You have seen this here over and over again. And they can become a prison for us where we really can't see too far outside of it. And a kind of solitary confinement or exile. And, and not just from each other, from other human beings, but from the whole non-human world, too. So many of you reported arriving here in the desert for the first time and, and feeling, and I remember feeling it too when I came here for the first time, I don't know, maybe 11 years ago, I can't remember how many retreats here, but I had never seen this desert. It looked so bleak and so actually terrible, sort of grayish, brown, and lifeless, and people had said, oh, you're going to the desert. And I thought, why? Why? <laughs> you know, I didn't get it. And, and yet, so many of you have 
come in and said, you know, when Jack talked about the lizards and the rabbits, I was like, I don't know. I don't see any lizards or rabbits. And as the mind quiets down and begin to step out of the mind house, you know, that thought world, suddenly, yes, it's teeming with life. Lizards and rabbits and there's some little albino squirrels that live in a prickly pear cactus right near my apartment. And when they emerge to eat the wild bird seed that I put out for them, we just, anyone who's there with me would just stop and watch them and just riveted by their cuteness and our affection for them. This is from an address to an NGO at the United Nations uh, in 1977 from Oren Lyons from the Onondaga tribe. He said, I do not see here a delegation for the four-footed. I see no seat for the eagles. We forget and we consider ourselves superior, but we are a mere part of the creation. We must consider and understand where we are. And we stand somewhere between the mountains and the ant. And this is humility. We stand somewhere between this great desert and the little white squirrels. But when we forget that we're just part of the whole creation and we elevate our own needs for comfort and ease into fixed positions and construct ideas about our own entitlement and who we are culturally and socially and familially, uh, you know, viewing ourselves in a particular way, we can see how those views put us in conflict, not just with the non-human world, but with ourselves and with each other and maybe with our roommates. Um, as the Buddha said, those who cling to their views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> One retreatant spoke about how even though his alcoholic father, who was abusive to him, has been dead for years, he said there's still a macho standoff inside of him, with his dead father, who he carries still inside. And he's wondering about that. He's seeing it. This is a quote from Red Hawk. We are so conditioned to believe that when we see a conflict, we have to jump in and react to it. One of the most difficult things to do in this work of self-observation is to observe without judging. Lay down your sword and cease fighting, weary traveler. The fight is a trap. This was my backup here. Um, and this is a story. It's, um, it's actually a favorite anti-war story. The late Paul Reps, a poet, he um, shared the story of his studies. 
in Asia. Um, at one point, he had traveled to Japan wanting to visit a respected Zen master in Korea. And he went to the office to um, apply for his visa, and he was politely informed that his request was denied because there was a war that had, the Korean War had just broken out in Korea. Now, he had come thousands of miles with the plan to study with this Korean master, and he was frustrated and disappointed. And he, he just sat down in the waiting area and decided to practice his Zen. So reaching into his bag, he mindfully pulled out a thermos and poured himself a cup of tea. And with a calm and focused mind, he watched the steam rising and he smelled the fragrance of the tea and uh, drank it. And then finishing the tea, he, you know, put his cup back on the thermos and put the thermos back in his bag and pulled out a pen and paper and he wrote a haiku poem. And he, after, the, after he wrote the poem, he stood up again, walked very mindfully to the clerk behind the desk, and he bowed and presented him with his poem and his passport. The clerk read the poem, and he looked up into Paul Reps's eyes, and he saw there that loving awareness. And smiling, he bowed with respect, he picked up Reps's visa and stamped it for passage to Korea. The haiku read, Drinking a cup of tea, I stop the war. And in these moments, when we are fully and quietly present with experience, whether it's the experience of coming to offer Dharma talk to you, or the experience of um, frustration, uh, disappointment of, you know, uh, long-held plans, um, we can see that the outer conflicts come from the inner conflicts and lack of peace in our own hearts. And the corollary, Paul Reps beautifully demonstrated. Now this is a piece of little-known lore about assassins. Assassins have captured the hearts and imagination of the teachers, as you may have noticed. Um, Vinny is responsible for this piece of information that he shared with me today as a support for our Dharma talk and for me. He told me that assassins, real assassins, not just the kind that are like good at their work. I mean, they're good at their work, but their work is being an assassin. Um, that they would go into caves and they would um, block the entrance to the cave so it would be very dark in there. And they would stay in there for three or four days like that. And then when they would go out and fight, 
their vision would be so attuned and clear that, of course, they would have um, an advantage. We could look at this room as our cave. Not that the entrance is blocked or that it's completely dark, but we close our eyes and we enter. Uh, we deliberately go within and we meditate in a kind of, not exactly darkness, but we definitely step back from the world and gather our inner strength. And you've been in this dark cave for days now, and you can see so much more. All of you are seeing so much more. And the Buddha said so clearly, and we know it, that it's the not seeing that causes suffering, or the perpetuation of suffering, because we have to see it to be able to do anything about it. And um, now you can begin to see. We can begin to see better all the apparitions of the mind that take us away from the peace of our own being. Like you may have noticed a thought arise today or tonight. Wow, I'm almost out of here. <laughs> Something like that. Or you may have had the thought, whoa, I am so deep in here. You may have had both at different points in the day. But either way, right, it's a thought that you're seeing. And as such, it's taking you, us, away from the alive experience of what's right here. We live in a very conditioned culture. Probably every culture is, to some extent, a conditioned culture. And we see so clearly the various isms that cause suffering, uh, racism, ageism, sexism, classism, all the gender stereotypes, homophobia, the list goes on and on. And we're studying here how to be present in loving awareness, because not caught in those constructs. And when we're not caught, there is such a profound sense of possibility, of open-heartedness. And, and then when we meet pain, the hurt, we can, we can listen compassionately, listen to ourselves, listen to the stories that may be unfolding in our hearts. And doesn't that seem like the kindest way to navigate this life, this incarnation? And this kindness, really, it begins at home here. Self-kindness or self-compassion. Which means being caring and understanding with ourselves instead of um, harshly critical. So many of you have talked about your, the inner critic, the judge. And here, rather than attacking and berating 
ourselves for not being good enough. We offer this self-warmth and, and unconditional acceptance, really. We hold this paradox of the radical acceptance that we offer, even though we understand and see so clearly that particular behaviors or attitudes of mind do not serve us and need to change. My friend um, and colleague, Chris Germer, has developed a whole course uh, in mindful self-compassion. And he has done research, lots of it, and, and studied all the research. He's my source for all the latest research. And he says that the greatest barrier to self-compassion is um, people's belief that self-compassion is somehow indulgent, that it will sap our initiative, our motivation. But the research demonstrates that self-compassion is associated with greater personal initiative to make needed changes in one's life. Because self-compassionate people, he says, do not berate themselves when they fail. So they're less afraid of failure and more able to take on new challenges. And you can see it here. You know, when we're berating ourselves for having a wandering mind, for being distracted, for wishing for the more, better, different, that Howie was talking about, that sense of lack. Uh, it's exhausting and it's discouraging and we don't like it. And the self-compassion, the acceptance, it just, just makes it all somehow bearable. This is from Pema Chodron. She's talking about setting an intention for peace, um, for compassion, for self and other compassion. And, and we have to set that intention and reaffirm that intention, sometimes moment by moment, really. It's that bad sometimes. And she says, um, fortunately, when we break the commitment to take care of one another, it's easy to mend. We start by acknowledging that we broke it. Right? That's the recognition, the first noble truth. There's suffering. We broke it. That we hardened our heart. That we closed our mind. That we shut someone out. And it might be ourself. And then we can retake our vow on the spot, or as a daily practice, we can reaffirm our intention to keep the door open to all sentient beings for the rest of our life. That's the training of the spiritual warrior, cultivating courage and empathy. And this is the training that we're doing here, cultivating metta, cultivating compassion, forgiveness, um, equanimity for all beings, as Noah was saying today. And it's impossible to count the number of beings who are suffering in the world. The Tibetans call it oceans of suffering. But we still aspire not to give up on any of them and to do whatever we can 
to alleviate pain. So one time when the Buddha visited some students who were living and practicing together, he said to them, when he got there and they did all the nice courteous things, I think they washed his feet because he was barefoot and dust, feet all dusty from traveling. And they let him sit down, arrange his robes, make him uh, welcome. And he said to them, it was very sweet. He said, I hope you're comfortable. I hope you're well. I hope you're receiving enough alms food and living in harmony with each other, with mutual appreciation of each other. He said, without disputes, and this is the beautiful phrase, blending like milk and water, not oil and water. They don't blend, but milk and water, and viewing each other with kindly eyes. And they responded, they told him how they do it. You know, they, they said, you know, we practice metta. We really practice not hanging on to our views about what we need or that our wishes are more important than the other person's. You know, we really, um, we really try. And they said, this is what I, the part I like the best. They said, um, they acknowledge they're, they're really quite different from each other as people. But they said, we're united in our intention to cultivate metta, to cultivate loving kindness. While we are different in body, we are one in mind in that way. And that's what we're like here. We're very lucky. We're, we can be comfortable sometimes. Uh, we can have a blanket if we're cold and we certainly have enough alms food, delicious, delicious, and abundant alms food. Um, and we have these teachings of how we can view each other with kindly eyes, or even in those moments when maybe our eyes aren't so kindly, how we can reaffirm our intention to do so. And this is the... Um, the wisdom and understanding that allows us to live in a world of differences and complexity without creating suffering in ourselves or with each other. When I was traveling on pilgrimage to the great Zen temples of Korea, oh gosh, now I want to tell you two stories. Let me just check where I am, how much time and stuff I have still to share with you. I think I can. Um, so I went, this was, I think, 1987, a long time ago, with my teacher, my first teacher, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanim. And some of us went with him on this pilgrimage and he took us to some of the great temples of his homeland. And he, and there was one place where we were traveling together on a bus. And uh, there was one place where the bus slowed and it stopped. But we didn't get out. We weren't invited to get out and visit this temple. 
And it was a funny, it was very small, kind of unobtrusive, inconspicuous entrance. I mean, it could have been like a massage parlor. I can't read Korean calligraphy. You know, it didn't look like a temple gate or anything. Um, and he said to us, uh, this is the whole life Zendo. I thought, well, you know, what is, what is that? What's the whole life Zendo? He said, when you go in here to practice, when you go into retreat here, you take a vow that you're going to stay there the rest of your life, that that will be where you die, that you will practice there. You won't ever come out, at least not walking out. <laughs> Maybe your ashes come out. I don't really know if they keep your ashes there. Or I didn't, we didn't ask about that part. But, um, but it was a real moment, you know, imagine coming to Joshua Tree, <laughs> you know, and saying, this is how much I love the Dharma. This is my commitment to being able to view life with kindly eyes. This is my commitment to understanding in the deepest way possible. I mean, the Buddha actually made a vow like that when he sat down, you know, his determination just I'm not going to stand up until I understand what, why I suffer, what this is. So that was the whole life uh, temple. And uh, there was, I was really inspired by some of the nuns, well, the monks too, but one nun in particular that I met there. And uh, she taught me a teaching called uh, tracing back the radiance. And this comes back to one of the questions from, I guess it was yesterday morning. Um, they've kind of blended like milk and water all the days, haven't they? Um, about, well, who we are, and who is it who's even wondering who we are? And then who is it who wonders who wonders? who we are, right? That infinite regress of wondering. Um, and this nun had been given a question like that by her teacher as a koan. And it was the question with which she practiced her whole life. So, I mean, she could travel and move around. She wasn't in the whole life zendo. But you know how we have questions. And every morning, you can ask a different question if you want. But she had been given this one question by her teacher, and that was the only question that she was to ask or respond to. And this question, because it's, of course, for her whole life, it's not expected that there's one answer, right? It's an unfolding um, process of discovery. And the question is what the question that she was given, and each uh, none had a calligraphy, or I'm sure monks too, but this was the nun that I knew. They had a calligraphy that their teacher gave them with the question, and hers was, what is mind? And uh, this is the kind of question that some of you are asking too, like, what is consciousness? What is awareness? What is this loving awareness anyway? What is it? And who is asking? So 
her teacher taught her to trace back the radiance rather than search outside ourselves for answers, you know, raise your hand in the hall, why not look inside? And her teacher said, what has just asked me this question, I wish I could have said this the other morning, what has just asked me this question is precisely your mind of empty, calm, bright awareness. Why not trace back its radiance rather than search for it outside? And then the teacher goes on. For your benefit, I will now point straight to your original mind so that you can awaken to it. Are you ready? Clear your minds and listen to my words, said the teacher. From morning until evening, during all the periods of the day, all the hours, during all your actions and activities, whether seeing, hearing, laughing, talking, well, hopefully not, whether angry or happy, whether doing evil or good, ultimately, who is it who can perform all these actions? Who can do all these things? The teacher goes on, You should know that that which is capable of seeing, hearing, moving, and acting is your original mind. How can it be clear and constantly aware, always bright and never obscured? Now, see, you don't experience it that way, but it is that way. It is that way, as Howie was saying this morning and showing us this morning is that way any time that we can open to experiencing it. He says, how can, you, how can it be like that and be able to do all these sublime functions as numerous as the sands in the desert? He says, I'll show one approach which will allow you to return to the source, trace back that radiance to the source. And the teacher says, I'm going to adapt it a tiny bit. Do you hear the rustling sounds in the room? Do you hear the sound of the distant traffic? Do you hear the stillness? And the student says, yes, thank you. And he says, trace the sounds back to simple hearing. Note, hearing, hearing. Somebody came in and told a story about being really annoyed by the sounds of coughing and sneezing in the hall because they're the sounds of sickness. This is the thought construct, the sounds of sickness. And if there's sickness around me and people are spewing microbes into the air, what are the chances, right? And now, sure enough, Today, my throat is scratchy, I get a little sick. Uh, It's very bothersome, very annoying. And yet, when this student practiced just hearing, not out there, the sounds and what they mean, 
and how threatening they are because, right, what they mean. But tracing it back to the simple source, simply hearing. And when she did that, what happened? She said, oh, it's okay. It's fine. No problem. No conflict. The Korean teacher said, marvelous, marvelous, said to the student in the story, marvelous. This is Kuan Yin's method for entering the gateway of peace. Very simple. It's so simple, we just hardly believe it. You know, I remember once, oops, I'm digressing. I'm going to keep going. Not, not, no digression. Um, so, this is also a way to show us how to move beyond polarized positions, right? And connect with being able to see the other side. Because this loving awareness can come back to the simplicity of being and hold both. Um, And you can still live according to your values and take a stand for what is right. I don't know how many of you know of a comedian named Louis C.K. Um, I happened to see uh, a show that he was giving, and one of the things he talked about was his beliefs. And he said, I love my beliefs. I love to believe my beliefs. He said, I don't care at all about living by them. Not a bit. And then he just said, I just love my beliefs. And he's got, mm-hmm. We laugh because we kind of resonate, right? From the great wise teacher in Sarkadatta, wisdom says, I'm nothing. Love says, I'm everything. And between these two, my life flows. You know, we can be inspired by the Buddhist tradition that even 2,600 years ago in India, where there's still a caste system, even though it's not legal, there's, uh, at that time it was very much legal, and it was an absolutely fixed and accepted construct for pigeonholing people into identities. And it was a big part of the culture, and in some ways still does contribute to tremendous suffering of injustice and racism and discrimination. And the teachings and the creation of the community around the Buddha were intentionally liberating from that. People were welcomed, whatever their orientation, whatever their background of caste or race, or whatever circumstance they were born into, they were welcomed. This was a really radical uh, teaching of justice and respect 
And we all have both limited and boundless identities, as we've seen here in our practice, in our experience, in our hearing of these teachings. We accept things the way they are, and we also need to work with our reactions and responses to them. We accept ourselves as we are, and we also need to change our beliefs and actions in the world. Just look at climate change. Look at, well, I won't go into the whole list of so many things that we need to change. And um, Jack likes to quote Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, who said, you're perfect, and we could say this about the world, about life, you're perfect just as you are. And there's still room for improvement, right? So how does this improvement happen? How does change happen? Um, Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And Nisargadatta elaborates on that. He says, my actual experience is not different. It's my evaluation and attitude of mind that differ. I see the same world as you do, but not the same way. There's nothing mysterious about it. Everybody sees the world through the idea she has of herself or he has of himself. As you think yourself to be, so you think the world to be. You know, if we're kind of wily and maybe kind of devious, we imagine that's what the world is like, too. If you imagine yourself as separate from the world, the world will appear as separate from you. And you'll experience desire and fear. I don't see the world as separate from me, so there's nothing for me to long for or to fear. He could be dancing that wild dance of no hope, right? But this is the heart of the healing work. It's really about empathy and how empathy works and how we can all do this and how we can shift our attitude of mind. And that willingness to do it is key because it frees our own hearts from judgment and rage and reactivity. The Tibetans call it exchanging self for other. And what happens when we do this? We all have the capacity to do this. Sometimes we call it, you know, walking a mile. But how about walking even a minute in someone else's shoes? It's powerful to do that. It's an amazing miracle of consciousness that we can actually trade places with the other and become them in this creative, imaginative, intuitive way. It's like Jack was demonstrating with the hands. It's a miracle that we can put our attention in these different places. I started out teaching mindfulness to children because their connection to their own aliveness and the immediacy of 
the present moment, not so mediated by thinking, uh, inspired me. One day I picked up Owen, my grandson. He's nine, he just turned nine now, but he was five at this time at school and we were sitting in the car waiting for his sister to come out of her beating class. And um, he was drinking chocolate milk, which he still loves, and having a cookie. So he was in present, you know, pleasant conditions at that moment. Um, he was, so he was drinking his chocolate milk and eating his cookie and he was just kind of relaxing back in his booster seat. And uh, he was talking about the Star Wars cookbook that he had borrowed from the library. And, and suddenly he laughed, and his eyes were just sparkling. And he looked at me and he said, Nini, that's what he calls me, this is paradise. <laughs> you know, all he needed to enter the kingdom of heaven was his openness and appreciation of the present moment, right? And it was, it's contagious, too. And you know, we too can find endless chances, ongoing and endless chances to come home to where we are, to recognize some condition of happiness that we have, just some little thing like Owen did. Um, with a little bit of mindfulness about ourselves, we can uh, open to a more relaxed and peaceful encounter with our experience, with what's happening, whether it's between us and our morning tea or our shower and breakfast or, you know, getting dressed or undressed, just slowing into the experiences of living here enough to um, create a possibility for friendship with our lives instead of conflict. And we can also connect the particular suffering that we might have to the suffering of all beings, that this is what it's like to be a human being who's in despair. This is what it feels like. One person um, came in and told the story of being just caught in a moment of, you know those moments when self-compassion sort of devolves into what we would have to call self-pity. And he was feeling really sorry for himself for good reasons, all good reasons. And he was just crying and crying. And, and then he turned and he saw the wastebasket, and he saw that it was full of Kleenex. And he had an epiphany, right? An awakening. Oh my gosh, I'm not the only person here who's crying. Not so personal. And when you see other beings in the same kind of suffering, it's not just like, oh, misery loves company. It's really just the sense of our shared humanity instead of feeling isolated and in a kind of condemned isolation, you know, just having a sense of that all humans are imperfect. We're together in this, that all people fail and make mistakes and have serious life challenges. And that's why we resonate to the story of the young, heartbroken spring, you know, surrounded by cigarette butts and empty Mountain Dew bottles, you know, just hurtling toward her refuge in the Dharma. Um, you know, we feel connected to this. We've all experienced our version of this, right? And we can always just, whatever it is, feel it fully in the body, feel the sensations, 
calm and soothe ourselves by returning home to the body to steady ourselves, take space, be peace. And this kind of links to your question, Nina, from yesterday morning, which I didn't have time to really answer because it was 9.45 already about, okay, you know, we feel it fully, but then what? What do we do after that? What about action in the world? Well, usually, if we're willing to take the time and space to feel something fully and make peace with it, ourselves, in that moment, we actually can then relate to the situation more wisely. We relate to it instead of from our reactivity, you know, as, as Noah was saying the other night. This is from a Native American grandmother named Leela Fisher. Maybe it was Lila, but I like to say Leela for obvious reasons. She says, all children are my children. I teach them the songs and whatever else I can. That's what grandmothers are for, to teach songs and tell stories and show them the right berries to pick and the right roots to dig. And this is what we're learning here. You know, what are, where are the wise places to dig and look? And what are the, um, the safe berries that will really nourish us? Uh, how to find the attitudes of mind that will help us learn and take steps that are good for us. And then she goes on, Grandmothers are also for this, to give them all the love they can stand. No better job in the world than being grandparent. So we forgive ourselves for being imperfect, for being learners and making mistakes as we learn. And, you know, we, uh, we can begin to trust in our good heart, the good heart of intention and compassion that's available to us, more and more available as we use uh, these tools of, that we're learning here in the retreat. And, and we come to see that, you know, that teaspoon of salt that is just such an irritant when it, if we were to have to, you know, put it in our mouth or in a, just even a cup of water, we would not want to drink that. But when that salt is dissolved in something bigger, well, we wouldn't put it in the carp pond, but um, <laughs> something bigger. Maybe an ocean, you know? We don't even, it just, well, we do taste it's a little salty, but let's just um, understand what the Buddha was pointing to. <laughs> Since I'm not telling it exactly right. Right? creating space around our experience, and yeah. Uh, and so underneath all these salty conditions is our Buddha nature, our, our loving awareness and compassion. And, um, and both individually and collectively, it's so important to realize this and apply these principles because we can see writ large all over the globe what happens when people don't and what's happening to our Earth. It's so relevant to what the world needs now. 
Love, sweet love, right? It's the only thing there's just too little of. So I want to close. Um, this is actually a song, but I've only heard it once or twice because um, it was just given to me, so I don't know the tune. So I'm going to read it like a poem. And it's from uh, the husband of a dear Dharma sister who's here in the retreat, Larry Gallagher. The poem is called, Ernest Went Out of His Mind. It's actually, as I said, a song, but I'm going to read it. I'm just going to read the lyrics like a poem. Sorry, Noah. Ernest went out of his mind. Ernest was sick to his soul. He was reaching the end of his wits. He was pickled with self-pity and stricken with doubt. He was sick of the things he was certain about. And try though he might, he could see no way out of his bind. So Ernest went out of his mind. <laughs> right? We understand this. It shocked him how simple it was, just a zig and a zag to the left. But his mind didn't blink. It kept buzzing away like a bag full of wasps on a hot summer day. He thought to himself, hell, if nobody here seems to mind, I'd rather be out of my mind. And he stepped outside. And he opened his eyes to the blue of the sky and the clouds rolling by. And the sun shone through and warmed his soul. And he noticed the breeze and he noticed the trees. And he said, somebody, please, is this what it's like to be whole? Ernest had gotten a taste. And he swore he would never go back. Yeah, how many times have you sworn that, right? <laughs> I'm never going to turn away from this. He swore he would never go back. He'd leave the city and wander the land with his head in the stars and his feet in the sand, tripping and skipping his way to the end of the line when Ernest went out of his mind. He said, the message is clear. The kingdom of heaven is here. And though I have the run of it, none of it's about me. There's nothing to do and no one to be. Is this what it's like to be free? That night, he went back to his room to grab a few baubles to take on his way. And what did he see when he opened the door? But his poor little mind passed out on the floor. <laughs> and for all of the racket and all the trouble it caused him, he hadn't the heart to abandon it there. All of the years, it had served him. It didn't deserve such a pitiful fate. And if it wasn't too late and he wasn't too burned, he might even teach it the things he had learned. And he knew if he found himself pointlessly and uselessly confined, he could always go out of his mind. So remember, kids, you can always go out of your mind. So let's sit together and go out of our minds. You know how you've been talking. There's sort of those rumbles and things. 
that's the bombing range at the biggest marine base, so we're sort of the other side of the conflict, in case you want to mention. And as we listen to sounds, some of the sounds we've been hearing that sound like distant thunder are actually the sounds of bombing in the practice range at the Marine Base at 29 Palms, about a half an hour from here. And we can trace back the radiance, the ability to perceive sound, the miraculous intelligence that can discern, wow, it's the other side of what we're doing here. And then we turn to simply hearing. everybody. Thank you so much for your kind attention and for your kindly eyes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.